morning. All right, so before we jump into the passage, I just want to give everybody a little bit of a background uh, history lesson on uh, the scene in general. So during, this is uh, during the time of Jesus. Um, the Roman Empire basically ruled everywhere in everything they basically saw. Um, and uh, there were a certain set of groups, especially Israel, that had a couple people that were in power. Uh, when Jesus came, he basically disturbed their way of life. That's usually the case when, um, you know, you can't really control exactly the narrative, what uh, you can say to the people, what they can do, what, anything like that. So in particular, this, uh, <clears throat> this guy was the Jewish king. His name was Herod, or Herod. Um, he was extremely corrupt, of course, and cruel, and basically gave all the homage to the Roman Empire. The next evil force in here is the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they hated the king because he was so corrupt. However, they both shared their same um, hatred in Christ because both of their lives were at stake. The uh, Pharisees in particular, um, they were very strict in their uh, obedience to the law of Moses. And so for them, um, they wanted their people to stay, uh, stick with that. But however, Jesus Christ came and disturbed their way of life again. So uh, again, these are the two particular forces that are working against Jesus in this particular chapter. So here we go. Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he had said. And they sent their disciples to him along with uh, the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and do not care what anyone thinks, for you are not partial to anyone. Tell us then, what do you think? It is, is it permissible to pay a pay, uh, poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used to pay toll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar, of course. Then he said to them, Then pay to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they were amazed. And they went and left him and went away. Let's say a Bible description together. Lord, we honor your word to us. Let your truth become our heart's pursuit and our life's practice. Pastor told me that I'm going to need to cover for him when the baby comes. And so I, he said, well, what do you want to preach on? I said, I've got something. I do have something I've been meaning to preach on. You see, in, uh, in early in my adult life, I was like every other young adult, you know, freshly married, having children, and starting to accumulate things we need in life, like cars and houses and furniture and, you know, mini blinds and, and, and whatever else you buy. And we found ourselves kind of like dealing with making these payments all the time and struggling. And so, and having money fights and money problems. What are you laughing about, Kendall? Mini blinds. We did, mini, um, plantation shutters. We haven't even got those yet. That's, what, that's the next thing she wants. All right, uh, let's get on the couch together and talk about that. <laughs> um, so we found ourselves struggling with money like most people do. And I was at work one day, and I walked into a construction office, and a man named Eric Four changed my life. And he, he told me about Dave Ramsey. And he told me about the seven baby steps and how you can change your financial future, change your financial life by going through these things. And so we did. We went through Dave Ramsey. We took the class Financial Peace University multiple times, all right, because it takes a few times to stick sometimes, and it really did change our lives, all right. So there's something very, um, uh, very deep and meaningful in God's Word when it comes to money, and people don't often associate God's Word with receiving money guidance and receiving uh, information about how to run a budget from God's Word. But the truth is, it's all in there. You just have to look for it. And so that's what Dave Ramsey does, is he takes information from God's Word, combines it with information that your grandmother would advise you about money, 
old, you know, uh, practiced, uh, uh, you know, methods that, that are proven to be true and combined them into, you know, his books and his message and his radio series. All right, so s- much of this comes from him. Some of it just comes from me, okay? And some of it comes from Pastor Randy and stuff that he's, he's taught as well. So um, we do need to, um, you know, we're gonna, I'm going to have a lot of scripture here. So because we don't have all the slides recreated yet, we might just have to actually refer to scripture instead of just looking at the slides. But that's okay. We'll, we'll get through that, all right? But I do want to make something clear that Kendall and I, even though we're talking and preaching about financial things, we are not perfect, okay? And many of you who know us best are going, oh, that's true. You are definitely not perfect, all right? So I'll be the first to say that. But however, there are some things that we've learned about money and, the, and some, things, some gospel truth about financial principles. And that's what, I, what the Lord has laid on my heart to share today. Um, because Jesus, he does speak more about money than any other topic. And so, or at least he mentions it. So that's our first slide. There's something to learn here. Jesus spoke more about money than he did about heaven and hell combined. With the exception of the kingdom of God, Jesus spoke more about money than anything else. Money is mentioned in 11 of the 39 parables in the Gospel of Luke. Money is mentioned in one out of every seven verses. All right? There are 2,500 verses in the Bible about money and possessions. Why? Is it because it's the most important thing we need to learn about? Not really. It's because that is our value system. It's what God built us to have a value system and to value things so we could survive. And so we take that and we apply it to all different areas of our lives. So God uses that and he refers to money to help us understand what he's talking about, just as a a method of conveying information. It's what speaks to us the most, is talking about money and possessions. But we've taken it out of hand. People are now, and were back then, obsessed with possessions, obsessed with stuff. We like new things. I don't know about you, but I certainly do. I love that shiny new truck. I love the, the, the uh, new furniture. I love the new house. It's fun, right? It's fun to get new things. And we like to show off. Whenever you get something new, what do you do? You tell people about it, right? Right? Amen? <laughs> so where, how do we usually tell people about it? On, you know, electronically. We take a picture, we send it, we share it on social media. And so there's something that we need to be aware of, a important cautionary tale about social media. Is, and I teach your teens this all the time. Be aware that whatever people share on social media is not the real version of themselves, is it? It's only the best version, usually, unless they're asking for help or something, something like that. But uh, usually it's, hey, look at this. Look how much fun I had today. Here's a picture of my kids all smiling. But behind the scenes, they've been wrestling all day, spilling their food all over the place, getting spanked and disciplined and everything else, right? Right, moms? We're all laughing, right? It's true. And so social media is not the real version of yourself. And there are teenage teenagers, especially girls, that take that stuff so seriously. They're committing suicide because they see somebody else having such a great life. And what do we do when we see any information about somebody else? We compare it to ourselves, don't we? We compare ourselves to their situation. It's like when you run into somebody you know in McDonald's, right? And you're like, what are you doing in McDonald's? You go to McDonald's? I didn't know I was better than you. (laughs) Well, you're in McDonald's too, right? So um, we compare ourselves to everybody else that we see. So be aware of that whenever you're posting things that somebody else, that may, you know, touch them. It's, It's fine to share things, family and friends. You want to share fun events, but just be aware that that's not the real version of ourselves. It's not the real version of other people that they're sharing. So... But we do want to buy things. We do want to, uh, um, you know, have fun with money. The funny thing is, and we've said this before, but we buy stuff we don't need, usually with money we don't have, to impress people we don't know. Is that right? We, we put stuff on a credit card. We, we get a car loan to impress somebody at a stoplight you'll never meet again. Right? And if you're my teenage son, you might just rev your engine at them. <laughs> 
to say, look, my car not only looks good, it sounds good too, right? You're never going to meet them again, but you spend all this money on stuff, all right? Sorry, Chris, I'm not just preaching to you, all right? All right, so, um, so people compare themselves to all the information that's out there, and the bad thing about comparisons is it always brings one of two things, both of which are really harmful. It either brings pride for yourself because you see somebody else posting something, and you're like, oh, I've done that. I've been there. I've better than that. It brings pride in yourself. Or if you see somebody posting something that you wish you could do or have, it brings jealousy. Either pride or jealousy. And both are detrimental to your soul, right? They're both harmful to ourselves, to our confidence. They're either more successful, prettier, more handsome, or they're a better parent, because which mom doesn't love to post about her young kids and what she's doing? Oh, I took them to the zoo today. I'm such a great mom, right? And so we look at that and go, man, I haven't been to the zoo in forever. Maybe I need to do that. And now you're feeling bad about yourself, even though you, you know, you're spending you know, time doing other you know, um, very good activities for them. So, so we just need to be aware of that. But we're always pursuing more. Human beings are always pursuing more things, more success, more money, more possessions, and, it's, it's, and it brings a lot of problems. The pursuit of stuff in our economy has caused so many different types of sins. Greed, people pursuing things will trick other people. Um, there's there's uh, family drama. If somebody dies and somebody gets an inheritance and somebody else doesn't, or if one sibling makes more money than the other sibling, there's animosity, right? So there's all this pursuit of stuff causes so many problems. That's why the Bible says money is the root of all evil. Right? Does it say that? It doesn't. It doesn't, does it? We have a, we have a slide on that one. Money is the root of all evil. Keep going. All right. First Timothy 6.10. It doesn't. What it actually says is the next slide. It's the love of money. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The pursuit. It's not the money. It's not the possessions that are evil. It's the pursuit of those things causes all kinds of evil and all kinds of sin for us because it's what speaks to us. It's what we want. And so in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus addresses this. And what's funny is in the synoptic gospels, the two of them of Matthew and Luke, he says the exact same thing. So when God says you something twice, you better listen, right? He says, no one can serve two masters. You will either hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. But you cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and money. So we must serve God while living in a world that uses money. And we have to use money. And then we have to resist the temptation to love money. And that's hard. That's the hard part. All right, so how do we do that? As Christians, we have to align our worldview with kingdom values. And that's what today is about, to align our world with kingdom values. It's how God looks at money. How does Jesus look at money we have to have a biblical worldview. And when I started studying biblical worldview, probably about 15 years ago, my wife and I went through a study on that, and it kind of changed everything for us. Like, this is how God views the world, and it clarifies so many things for us. Like, when you're looking at um, the needs in the world around us, if you think about how does God view this? How does God view us? He views us as his children, the same as you view your children. And so when I start to get prideful of something I've done or something, some way I feel, it's kind of like a two-year-old being prideful that he washed his hands. And that's how God looks at us. Yes, you are proud of them, but come on, that's an easy thing. You can do better than that, right? You're growing. And that's how God views us. It's the same, the same love, but also the same, like, you, you know, you're growing. You're, I have more for you. So when we put on a biblical worldview, we begin to see the world through God's eyes and we get to get aligned on his purposes, on his purposes for our life and for what we're supposed to be doing 
to serve his kingdom. So what is God's view of money? Well, Paul just read Matthew chapter 22. It's the Herodians versus the Pharisees. And both of these different people hate Jesus. The Herodians are loyal to Herod and the Roman Empire. And they say, yeah, we're Jewish. We're not real super religious, but we want to have a king. We want to keep things going the way they are. Don't rock the boat, right? The Romans are here. They're going to kill us if we object to them. Let's just keep on going and just let them be in charge and we'll just keep Herod our king, all right? The Pharisees are like, no, no, no. God is our king. We're going to follow the Mosaic law and the traditions passed down through the Jewish um, um, the Jewish people from, from the Old Testament. And this is what we're following. And Jesus challenges both of those. Just like Paul said, both people hate Jesus because he's disrupting what they've got going. All right? So two different people. So they ask Jesus. They're like, let's catch him in a catch-22. And they say, should we pay our taxes? Because if Jesus says, yeah, pay them, then the uh, Pharisees are going to hate him because they think that we should not be rendering things to Caesar because, um, because he's the king. We don't need to support the occupation, the Roman occupation. But if he says, uh, no, you shouldn't pay them, then the Herodians are going to get mad. And they're going to say, well, why won't you pay your taxes? They're in charge. We have to, to follow this. And you see the same argument these days in politics. And Jesus does something amazing. In his brilliance, his literal infinite wisdom, he says, wait a minute, show me a denarius whose face is on it. It's Caesar's face. He's like, this belongs to Caesar. It's got his face on it. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but render to God what is God's. Well, what is God's? Our heart. It's us. We are God's. And we are supposed to serve him and not the money. Right? So Jesus, they were amazed. It says they were amazed. They have nothing else to say, and they left. They left. So Jesus is even more explicit about what he wants. Uh, So God doesn't... Okay, let me back up. There's a clear division that Jesus is making between kingdom values and earthly values. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, render to God's what is God's. A clear line that wasn't there before, and he makes it because God doesn't care about your money. And that's a really bold statement, isn't it? God doesn't care about your money. He cares about your heart. And that's what he wants, and that's what belongs to him. Even though we live in a world where money exists and we have money fights and money problems, God transcends our money problems, and he deals with our heart. He laughs at the fact that we're so worried about how we're going to pay for that new shirt. He says, I will provide everything you need if you seek the kingdom first. I will provide it all. And we forget that, just like a two-year-old, right? We forget that he is our provider. So God wants your heart, and he wants you to treasure him like we just sang about in the song, first. We'll seek him first. He's explicit about this in Matthew chapter 6, 19 through 21. And again, I, don't, I wasn't able to recreate all of these slides, but if you'd like to turn there, Matthew chapter 6, we're going to refer to this a few times. It says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. What does treasure represent? It's whatever we value. Whatever we value is our treasure. So we just sang the words that said, Lord, you are our treasure. We value you most above all else. So our big idea today, we have a slide on this, is that God's highest concern is what you treasure, not how much treasure you have. All right, let's say it together, can we? One, two, three. God's highest concern is what you treasure, not how much treasure you have. And that's our walkaway point for today, is that God is concerned about what we're treasuring and what we're valuing. Because whatever we value 
has an effect on our heart. Whatever we spend money on is what we value. Okay, you're valuing something, you're investing in it, you're paying money for it. All right, if you value security, if you value safety, if you value peace of mind, then you will be anxious to make sure you have enough. And this is where I have weaknesses. If you value making sure you have college funding for your kids and making sure you have enough savings and making sure you have retirement, do I have enough, do I not, you're going to be anxious all the time because you're valuing that security instead of valuing the Lord who provides all. If you value possessions and that's what you live for, new things all the time, then you're always going to be jealous. Somebody else is always going to have something better than you. And you're always going to be striving and reaching and pursuing for more possessions, more things, all right, if you value possessions. But if you value God, then you pursue God and you pursue his righteousness. And then the Bible says he will provide everything else for you. We lay up treasures in heaven. Whenever we lay up treasures in heaven, we release that anxiety, that worry, am I going to have enough? And we release the jealousy. I'm happy with what I have because it was provided by the Lord. He provided me the intellect to go to work and earn this money. He provided me the ability to get this promotion. He provided me the paycheck that I have every week, and it's enough. And whenever you're seeking God's kingdom, you're satisfied with what he has provided you. All right, so let's keep looking in our Bibles right after Matthew chapter 6. Is it Matthew? It is Matthew. Matthew chapter 6. Look just a little bit further down to verse 22. Right after he says, lay up treasures in heaven, he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. And your eyes are unhealthy, then your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Well, he's talking about as a biblical worldview. If your eyes are healthy, the whole body will be full of light. Your eyes are the windows to the soul. You have to have healthy eyes to see from a worldview perspective, from a godly perspective. And then right after that, he follows it and says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And then he uses a very important word, therefore. And any good preacher will tell you, when you see the word therefore, you need to look and see what it's there for. All right? So we, we see that because we built up treasures in heaven, your worldview is healthy, you're looking healthily, and you serve God instead of money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body or what you'll wear. Is not life more than food? And the body more than clothes, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? Man, that's awesome. And then a little bit further down, he says in verse 33, but seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. What comforting words. All we have to do is seek first his kingdom. Value him. Value his uh, you know, godliness. Value righteousness. Treasure him and everything else to take care of. If only it were that easy, right? If only it was just a one simple step. So... So what do we do? We must consistently, intentionally build kingdom values in our life and in our families that transcend money. They have to transcend money. Like God's going to provide the money for you. It's not about you pursuing money. It's about you pursuing God's kingdom. And this is in direct opposition to the prosperity gospel. Everybody ever heard of that? There's a lot of preachers out there that say you can claim that house and you can claim that car for yourself. None of that is biblical. All right? God does not interested in providing luxury items for you. 
if you want a luxury item, no problem. Go get it. Work hard. Save up the money. There's nothing wrong with that in the world. But don't claim it and say, God's going to provide me that luxury item when you're behind on everything else. Right? When you're behind on taking care of your family, your college is not taken care of, uh, you know, retirement's not taken care of, you're behind on your electric bill, but God's going to provide you a new house? Come on. Right? So don't listen to those preachers that say that stuff. God doesn't care about your money. He cares about your heart. He wants to provide all your needs, but not these luxury items that don't fit within the rest of your life, within the rest of your worldview. Okay? Give to God what is God's, namely your heart. So here's a big question I have for you, and I have a slide on this. What about me transcends my financial situation? What about me can the Lord be proud of that has nothing to do with my money? God's not proud of my income. He gave it to me. He's not proud of it. He's not proud of my house. He provides me shelter. He's not proud of that. He's not proud of the cars I have. He's proud of me seeking him. He's proud of me serving him. And that's what we need to keep in mind. That's our biblical worldview, okay? Well, so is money bad then? What about all these rich people? Rich, evil people. You'll hear that in the world. Rich people are evil. We need to tax them. They need to pay their fair share. All right, all of this kind of stuff. Rich people are evil. It's, it's a concept called eat the rich, and it's been around for centuries. And the politicians will seek power from people who don't have money by villainizing people that do. Does anybody know some evil rich people? You could probably name some evil celebrities that are rich, right? Well, there's also really good rich people, right? It's not the money that makes them evil. It's pursuing money. Because money is not inherently evil, but it is a couple of things. And I have another slide. Money is two things. Money and wealth are amplifying and they're blinding. Money is amplifying and it's blinding. I'm sorry, Colin, I may have gotten those out of order there. It's amplifying. It makes you more of what you already are. It's like an adrenaline pump into your character. Whenever somebody who's greedy and mean and a jerk and they inherit a lot of money, well, now they're a big jerk. They're a bigger jerk, all right? And you probably can imagine that happening. If somebody's really nice and really generous and cares about other people and then they inherit a bunch of money, they become really, really generous. And if they get really, really rich, they become a philanthropist. Right? So money amplifies whatever character you already have. The money's not going to make your life better. <clears throat> it might have some, you might have more fun because you get to do things. It doesn't make you a better person. All right? You're not a better person because you have a higher income. In fact, you might even be a worse person. Um, but money amplifies what you already are. And it's blinding. Now, this is the most significant thing for, for me. As Americans, most of us live in pretty prosperous conditions compared to the rest of the world, right? All of you are wearing beautiful clothes. There's no holes in them. You know, all your shoes have all their soles on them. There's not, you know, you're not, you know, sewing up your clothes or the holes in them and all that kind of stuff versus the rest of the world. You know, the average income is like, as you could count them, the dollars on a couple of hands, the average worldly income per family. And in the United States, we have a lot of luxuries, a lot to be thankful for, but we just kind of live a different life than the rest of the world does. And you see that whenever you travel around the world. Not that I'm saying we shouldn't, but we should be grateful for it. We should, we should appreciate it. And, but the problem is that it's blinding. Whenever we have prosperous conditions, we start to think that we are the reason for our prosperous condition. We start to think that we have it under control, that we are in charge of our security, that we know what's going on and we can take care of ourselves. So the Lord addresses this. Oh, I've got a, a, a great meme on this. Jesus, I don't know if, if, uh, if you've noticed, but when people, it's the other one. Whenever people are broke, 
they seem to seek the Lord. You praying again? Oh, money gone, huh? (laughs) When people are broke, they tend to seek the Lord more. And do you know what happened in 2008 whenever everything crashed and the, the real estate bubble popped and people were losing their homes and losing their jobs? Church attendance went way up. Church attendance always has an inverse relationship with the gross domestic product in this country. Isn't that interesting? People seek the Lord more when they're out of money. But when they have money, they think, I'm good, right? I've got it together because it's blinding. Wealth is blinding. And the Lord addresses this in Revelation. To the angel, which angel means messenger, to the church in Laodicea, write. This is the Lord telling the angel to write this to this church. These are the words of the amen the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know the deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. You're lukewarm. I wish you were either one or the other, but because you're lukewarm, neither cold or hot, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me, the Lord says, gold refined in fire so you can become rich. That's what real richness is. And white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and a salve to put on your eyes so you can see, so you can have a good worldview. You can have a biblical worldview. This is Jesus speaking to America, I feel like, right? You're so prosperous, you think you've got it all together, You don't. You're actually just wretched human beings that need a Savior. You don't have it all together. All right, so if that's America and we don't have it all together and we're blinded by our prosperity, we think we've got it all together, why do we struggle so much? Why do we struggle financially? You know, 64% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. 64% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. I mean, somebody from a third world country would hear that and not even understand what we're saying. They're like, wait, you get a steady paycheck and you live paycheck to paycheck? You can't save any money? Like you can't take care of yourself and have a plan, right? So it's kind of mind boggling. So what we need to do as Americans is we got to figure this out. We've got a paycheck. We've got a God who provides. Let's be responsible for what he's provided. And I've got five simple things that we can do. And most of this is from Dave Ramsey. But number one, we've got to get control. You've got to get on a budget. Folks, this is the life-changing financial, the biggest life-changing financial step you can make is to get a plan, to get on a budget, put a plan together. Because if we don't tell our money where it's going, It will go by itself and not come back, and you won't know where it goes, right? So we've got this other meme here. When you go to check your bank account, if you don't have a plan, I'm guessing I should have about $200 left, and you check, and it's empty. Has that ever happened? It happened to me last week. It turns out that we were actually, some money had to be transferred over from savings to cover some expenses. Like, if you don't have a plan, it will leave, and you won't know where it goes. There's always too much month at the end of the money, right? And so you got to have a plan. we got to have a plan for what God has given us and where it's going to go and what we're going to do. That's the most important step. Make a plan to achieve your goals. And I could talk about budgets all day long. I know everybody hates the dreaded B word. Fine, call it something else. Call it a cash flow plan or something else. All right, and there's lots of ways you can do this. There's free uh, websites. You can plug in your expenses. Uh, We happen to use mint.com because you can plug in your bank accounts and it automatically has all your charges there and you can apply it to budgets, you know, through your phone, through your app. And it's very functional. We don't always stay on top of it like we should. We're not perfect. In fact, we probably need to have a budget committee meeting soon. But uh, it's, it's, it's been a game changer. And we've been doing that for about 15 years. So the, the second thing, the second thing we can do to build financial values in our life is to get out of debt. Get out of debt. Does that seem 
Does that seem like a pipe dream to you? To, to be debt-free? The first time I heard about Dave Ramsey and I was talking to one of my other coworkers and I said, yeah, we're going to try to be debt-free. We're going to try to pay off our cars. He laughed. He said, yeah, right. That's not possible. In America today, it's not possible to be debt-free. And I'm here to tell you it is. People do it all the time. They call in a Dave Ramsey show. It's called The Debt-Free Scream. And they're so emotional, they call in and they get to scream, I'm debt-free at the top of their lungs. And there's a whole cultural thing behind that. But it's an amazing thing, an amazing feeling. And I'll tell you, you can do it. We're not totally debt-free. We, we have a mortgage, but we haven't had a car payment in 15 years. We haven't had a credit card in 15 years. Turns out everybody takes debit. You don't have to have a credit card. What about the points? Well, are the points really going to matter that much if you're paying interest? Well, no, I pay it off every month. Well, do you really? What if you miss? What if you miss a payment? We, uh, when I got my traveling job, I went and got a United Airlines credit card because I was going to rack up all these airline miles from all the travel expenses and everything, right? Seems like a smart thing to do. And if you, and it turns out I wasn't even late on the payment, but um, there was some, something, if you have to pay it by the end, not even by the due date, you have to pay it by the end of the month or they accrue interest. And so I paid $40 interest on the very first month. I was like, wait a minute. I, no amount of points is worth $40 a month, right? So I canceled it. And so I'm here to tell you, if you want to play the credit card game, that's up to you. Just know it's a game. And who writes the rules of a credit card game? Not you. They write the rules, and you play their game. And who reads the fine print? Nobody, right? Nobody reads the fine print, and they will get you. You might win for a while, but it's not going to be worth it. All right, so getting out of debt, it shows maturity. Getting out of debt is mature. It shows spiritual maturity and financial maturity because it means I'm willing to wait to get what I want. All right? I'm not going to try to get it right now because, I don't, because I'm impatient that's what debt is. Debt is impatience. I want it now. I don't want to wait. I don't want to save up the money. I need it. Or we convince ourselves that we need it right now. That's what debt really is. And we got to recognize that. And when you recognize that, it'll change everything for you. Can you imagine not having any payments? Not having a car payment. If you don't have a car payment and you lose your job, your car stays yours. They don't take the car. If your house it's paid for. They don't take the house. And you don't have any payments. It's so peaceful. Like, guys, I can tell you, it's living without car payments and having some savings brings so much peace to your household, to your marriage, because the number two cause of divorce is money fights and money problems. And so you want to bring some of that peace to your house? Get out of debt. Get a plan and get out of debt. All right. Proverbs 27 says, the rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is slave to the lender. Slave to the lender. All right? Those are strong words from God's word about money. And if you think, well, no, I'm in control. I got it all together. Just wait till you lose your job. Wait until something doesn't come through. Wait until even if you have your job and your employer doesn't make your paycheck come through on time. Now everything's late, and you can't cover those credit card payments, and now they accrue interest. And usually they accrue interest from the beginning of the year, like they add it all up, and you owe them, all right? It's a mess. Anytime you have debt, you are bringing on risk. Debt equals risk every time, all right? So what about using somebody else's money? They say that all the time. You should do these things using somebody else's money, not yours. Well, guess what happened to all those companies when the economy crashed in 2008? They all went bankrupt, they didn't have any good cash flow positions where they could stay in business. Everybody called the notes. The banks want their money all of a sudden, and you have to pay or you're bankrupt. And that's all because of debt, because of being in debt is like slavery. All right? We just bought a new car. 
a Buick. It's new to us. It was three years old. We bought it two years ago, and it was $33,000. And my wife waited probably three years from the time she wanted this car until she finally bought it. Not only that, but she shopped for, what, a year to find it. And not to brag too much, but that woman's mature when it comes to finances, right? She's willing to wait and get what she wants. And we saved up the money and we were able to pay for it. And now we don't have a payment. Now it's five years old, but still, our other two cars are each 15 years old and running fine. Nothing wrong with them, right? So, well, actually, the, the truck needs some transmission work, but that's, we're saving up for that, all right? The money is there waiting for me to schedule the appointment, all right? So I'm not stressed about it is the point, all right? All right, so the point here is that you are never in control if you're in debt. You're never fully in control. You never know what's going to happen, all right? Now, let me be clear about something else. God does address debt in Proverbs, but he does not say it's a sin, all right? So relax a little bit, okay? This is, it's good and it's wise and it's mature to pay off debt and to stay out of debt, but it doesn't mean it's a sin. It's not a salvation issue, okay? In Proverbs 6, 1, this is what he says, warn against folly, and folly is a, a Bible word that means foolishness, all right? My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, if you have co-signed with somebody, if you have made a promise to somebody to pay later, if you have put up security for your neighbor, if you have shaken hands in a pledge for a stranger, you have been trapped by what you said, ensnared by the words of your mouth. So do this. Free yourself. Since you have fallen into your neighbor's hands, go to the point of exhaustion and give your neighbor no rest. Allow no sleep to your eyes, no slumber to your eyelids. Free yourself like the gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the snare of the fowler. Has anybody, anybody ever seen a gazelle running from a cheetah? Have you? They don't just walk around, do they? They don't wander away. They zigzag. They run. They run as fast as they possibly can. And that's how God says we need to run from lenders. Run from debt. Get out of debt as quickly as possible by running. Folks, the average car payment in America as of December 2022 is $716. $716 for 69 months. That's over 200, no, it's not. Uh, sorry, that's a lot of, it's over $40,000. All right, $716 for 70 months. I, it's mind-boggling to me. It might not be to you. Um, but if you were to, that's from bankrate.com, and I have a slide on this one. I should. What if you were to not have a car payment, delay pleasure, which is the definition of maturity, and wait, 68 months. No, sorry. New car, 716 for 69 and a half months. The average used car payment is 526 for 68 months. Also, seven years. I mean, almost seven years. Is that normal now? That's hard to believe. Seven-year car note. Used to be five years. So what if you took that money? Let's talk about opportunity costs. If you were debt-free and you had no car payment, let me just blow your mind for a second. Go to the next slide. If you invested that in the stock market, in your retirement account, at the stock market average return of 10% per year, you would have $4 million if you did it from age 25 to age 65 for 40 years. $4 million. Is the car worth $4 million? That's the opportunity cost of having car payments forever. Because that's what we do, right? We, we go and we get a car payment, we get car fever. I'm just going to go to the dealership and look, see what they have. And you drive out of there in a brand new car, don't you? Every single time you get car fever and you have a huge car payment. And then what do you do after three or four years of making car payments? You say, it's time for a new one. So you trade that one in. Oh, I got a great deal. I got a great deal on this, on this car. They gave me so much for this. Now my new payment is this. 
and you do it perpetually forever. But what if you were just to wait until that car was paid for? Five years, or even if it's seven years. Cars last 15 to 20 years. You wait, and then you keep taking that same payment that you're used to making, and you throw it in a savings account, and you build up money for your next car, and then you use that to pay cash. You could, you could almost pay nothing for cars in the future. Now, you still have to pay for cars. You still have to buy them, but you don't have to invest so much in something that intrinsically goes down in value. I love when people say, oh, I'm investing in this car for safety. You know, I'm investing in this new thing for convenience. I don't invest in things that drop in value like a rock. That's where Chevy got that from, like a rock. It's the way they drop in value so fast, right? Anybody remember those commercials from the 90s, like a rock? It's how fast they go down. Don't invest money in things that go down in value so fast. We need to look at this biblically. God gave us this money. Let's spend it responsibly, not in something that, that falls, all right? Now, we know that you probably have to have some debt to exist in America, things like houses and things like that. But let's just keep in mind that debt is always dumb. The more debt you have, the dumber your financial plan is, okay? Sorry to use strong language, but that's what the Bible says. I didn't say it. God said it. It's folly. Folly. That's what the Bible says, all right? So if you do have to use debt, use as little as possible, all right? Think long-term. Think long-term, all right? The next thing that we need to do to live a financial biblical worldview is to foster high-quality friendships. Foster high-quality friendships. This is where we grow. Why is this in the money category? Because you are the sum of the five people that you spend the most time with. Do you know that? You are the, the average of the five people you spend the most time with. So who are you spending time with? Who are your kids spending the most time with? Are they spending time with people who have the same values, who have the same financial goals? Or are they out making a mess of their financial life and you feel the pressure to keep up with them, to keep up with the Joneses, to keep up with what they're spending and buying and doing, right? So be careful who you spend the most time with. Dave Ramsey says, think about the six people who's going to carry your coffin. Those people need to be people that you respect. Those people need to be ones that you can copy their character. All right? Those are the people you spend the most time with, and those are the people that you're going to mold into. So be careful who you pick. Also, your income will match the 10 people, the... Uh, uh, let's see. Your income within 10 years will be within 10% of the 10 people you spend the most time with. Within 10 years, your income will be within 10% of the people you spend the most time with. All right? So not just character, but also your income. So are they also building kingdom values? All right. The next thing we need to do is to save and invest. And this brings wisdom. Saving and investing is wise. In Proverbs 21, 20, it says, In the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil. A foolish man devours all he has. That sounds a lot like living paycheck to paycheck. The Lord says it's foolish to devour all you have. You need to be saving. So how do we do that? Well, 64% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. On top of that, 50.8% of Americans making over $100,000 live paycheck to paycheck. Half of the people making six figures live paycheck to paycheck. All right? Broke is dumb. I mean, uh, yeah, being broke is normal. Let's be unique. All right? Everybody's broke. Everybody's living paycheck to paycheck. We've got to break out of that. You need to save for an emergency. Why? Because emergencies happen. It will rain, all right? And it puts a cushion between you and life events, and it brings peace. I don't know about you, but my wife can sleep a lot better knowing that we have a few months of expenses 
in a savings account just sitting there waiting for something to happen. Now, we've never had to use it, thank God, but if we do, it's there, and it's sleeping medicine. It's peace. It's peace in your household, just having some savings there, all right? So the next thing we need to do is to be generous. Number five, and this is probably the most important, to be generous with what God has given you. Now, God has given you a lot more than money. He's given you time, talent, and treasure. Time, talent, and treasure. And we're supposed to be generous with all of them. Generous people are more attractive, meaning people want to be around you. But you can't be generous if you're broke. You can't be generous if you're too busy. You can't donate your time if you have to work all the time to make the payments that you've committed to, right? So these are handcuffs to being generous, to living the way we're supposed to live according to God. And why do we need to be generous? Because the Lord is generous. And if we're to be Christians, which means Christ-like or little Christ's, we need to be generous like him. And he is the ultimate giver, as we, we talk about all the time in our offerings. We have to be serving him and giving the things that he gave. We are, a, we are blessed by God to be a blessing to other people. All right? And Pastor Randy says that all the time. You're blessed for a reason. It's to be a blessing. The gifts of God are supposed to thro- flow through us because he gave. He gave his only son, and he continually gives grace and mercy to us every day, and he walks daily with us. And what an amazing thing, what a giving God he is. So have you been blessed? Have you been blessed financially? Who are you blessing financially? Who are you passing those blessings through to this? So don't miss this. God wants to meet your needs. He doesn't want to make you prosperous necessarily, although you may be. God is neutral about money. God wants to meet your needs, and he wants to use you to meet other people's needs. He wants to use you to meet other people's needs, and that is awesome. That's the greatest honor we can have as a Christian, because he gives us everything out of his provision, and he asks just a small portion back. He asks for tithes. Now, what is a tithe? A tithe is an Old Testament Hebrew word for tenth. That's all that means is a tenth. In Genesis 14, it starts all the way back in Genesis. Melchizedek, which is a priest, he's king of Salem, brought, back, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God's Most High, and he blessed Abram. This is after a huge battle. Abram won the battle, rescuing Lot. And he says, blessed be Abram, the God of most high, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God most high who delivers your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything, a tenth of all the spoils of the war. Then a few chapters later in Genesis 28, Jacob makes a vow to God saying, if God will be with me and watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be God will be my God, and the stone that I have set up as a pillar will be in God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a tenth. And in Leviticus, a tithe of everything from the land, whether it be grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. All right, and then why? Why does God say that we need to tithe? There's a very clear reason, and I lost these slides, so I apologize. But in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 22. It says, be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. You see, it conditions our heart to revere God, to obey God. Tithing regularly reminds us to revere the God because all good things come from him. And then in, um, also in chapter 28 of Deuteronomy, or, or no, further down, verse 28, so that the Levites, this is why we tithe, so the Levites who are the priests who have no allotment or inheritance of their own can have, or, or they don't have a salary, so they 
can, uh, and the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns may eat and be satisfied. So take care of the priests who have no jobs. Take care of the foreigners, the fatherless, which is the orphans, and the widows, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. That's why we tithe. So that the Lord can bless what we're doing. He can bless our work. And then in Malachi, this is the preeminent verse on tithing. Very clear instructions. Test me in this, says the Lord, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will be not enough room to store it. All right, God is going to bless us. He says, um, in tithes and offerings, you are under a curse if you steal the tithe. Your whole nation, because you are robbing me, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And I will prevent the pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not drop fruit before it's ripe. God will protect what we're working toward if we tithe. That's what God's word says. All right? He will rebuke the devourer. For them, this, these were locusts and thieves. Um, Ground-dwelling animals would eat the crops. For us, it might be something different. It might be robberies. You know, it might be layoffs, it, uh, maybe mechanical failures. God's making a promise that says, if you bring the tithe, I will be involved in your life and protect you from things that happen in a negative light. All right? All right, so now I mentioned earlier the prosperity gospel. This is not what we're talking about here. This is not if you pay God, God will pay you back. What it says is if you believe in God and seek his kingdom first, then he will take care of you. That's what we're saying here. It's not causation. It's correlation, okay? If you do these things and you have a responsible financial life, then good things happen to you financially, and it's probably because you're just being so responsible with a financial budget and you're tithing, putting tithes at the top and you're running control of everything else and you're running a budget. So good things happen financially and you are protected from catastrophes of the financial matter. All right. So what about Jesus? Does Jesus mention the tithe? We know it's an Old Testament concept. Well, the fact is that Jesus does reaffirm the tithe as well. In Matthew chapter 23, it says, What are you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites? You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. So they're tithing their spices. But you have neglected the more important matter of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. They're not doing the basic kingdom pursuit. Okay, They're not pursuing God's kingdom first. They're just tithing and thinking that's good enough. But Jesus says you should have practiced the latter, meaning the kingdom stuff, without neglecting the former, without tithing too. So he does talk about tithing, and he does reaffirm the need to, but he also puts it in perspective. He says that more important stuff is more important. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. All right? So throughout Scripture, the tithe represents our first fruits. God wants us to be faithful, to have faith in him. So that's why it's the first fruits. And that's why we are to give a tithe regardless of everything else. A lot of people say, well, while I'm trying to get out of debt, should I stop tithing? And Dave Ramsey always says, no, the Bible doesn't say not to tithe. It says you need to exercise this faith. You need to give a tithe before you pay anything else. It's the first fruits. And listen, this is not about Eagle Heights Church, okay? Let me be clear about that. All right, if you didn't tithe today, we're going to be fine, all right? We've, this is God's church, not our church, not your church, and it doesn't depend on you tithing today, all right? That's not what this is about. This is about us learning what God's Word says about tithing, okay? And if you don't believe me, fine. Don't tithe today or, or give money to somewhere else that's a good cause, like the Gethsemane Orphanage or something like that, okay? So let me be clear about that. That's not what this is about. This is about us learning what God's Word is, all right? Eagle Heights is going to be just fine because it's God's church, and He is the one who provides for us here, amen? All right, so first fruits requires faith. 
They didn't complete the harvest and see if there was enough left over to give to God. They gave God their first fruits first, and then they enjoyed the rest of the harvest. And that's how we're supposed to do it too. So when we do make a budget, the first fruits goes at the top. A lot of people try to get their mortgage, car payments, the biggest things first, line it all out, and then put tithing at the bottom for whatever's left. That's not how it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be tithe first. And so this is hard. It's really hard for people to do that. And that's why I stopped writing checks in church. Because it would come time to write it, and I would say, man, uh, I, I don't know if there's enough in there. This is really painful. And I'd find myself cutting what I was supposed to give to God. So instead, I made an automatic bill pay. And I know it's, it's part of worship to pay God and to write that check out in church while you're worshiping him. And that's important, but it wasn't working for me. I was robbing from God. So instead, I made an automatic bill pay. So every time I get paid, it auto, 10% automatically goes out. And it goes through the mail to my local church, which is Eagle Heights. And then on top of that, we have offerings. Offerings is something different. When we say tithes and offerings, tithes are the basic Offerings are from abundance. So when you have leftover, that's what the offerings come out of, all right, to be clear what the Lord says. Now, this is Mosaic law. This is Old Testament law that Jesus affirmed, but we are also covered under the new covenant, the new covenant in blood from Jesus. So that's why I say this is not a matter of sin. Tithing is not a matter of sin. It's a matter of obedience. It's a matter of respecting God, okay? It's not a salvation issue, so let me be clear about that. But we shouldn't be giving tithes obligatory either. You don't have an obligation. We should be cheerful givers, the Lord says. So if you feel pain when you're writing a check for tithing, don't write it. God doesn't want you to be obliged to give him. He wants you to be cheerful. Give cheerfully. Wait until you're cheerful to give to God. And that will be the way that he wants us to give because we want to be excited about what God is doing in our life and the fact that he's provided this to us. All right? So exercise worship. Declare him sovereign over everything in our life. Declare him the ultimate provider for everything that we have in our life. And declare him in charge of taking care of us. That is what the tithe is. It's worshiping him, saying, you are in charge. I'm not in charge. You provide everything for me. And I acknowledge that by giving you back a tenth of what you have given me. Thank you, God, for the 90% that I get to keep. Because it's by your hand that you provide it. And that's what the tithe is. It's worship. It's worshiping, declaring him worthy of everything that we have. Because it's all his anyways. All right? So I believe that this is something that I teach our teens all the time. Anytime you give over a portion of your life, that God takes that and blesses it. When you give God your relationships and say, God, I want to honor you in my relationships, he blesses your relationships. He gets involved. When you say, God, I want to give you my education. I'm not going to cheat. I'm going to pursue knowledge. I'm going to study hard. He blesses your schooling, makes you have good grades. He blesses it. When you give God your financial situation, God bless this. I want to do this according to your will. And you find unexpected blessings. This is not, not prosperity, not necessarily money even, but unexpected blessings. And I believe that wholeheartedly. Any area of your life that you give over to God, he takes it and he blesses it. And who doesn't want the creator of the universe, the one who wove our DNA together, the one who created the stars to have charge of any area of our life. Who doesn't want that? If you believe that God created the earth, then you believe that God can take control and be active in our life today. And who doesn't want that? All right, so how do I apply this message? Well, if you're not already on a budget, this is the single most life-changing thing you can do is to put together a plan for your financial future. Write it down on paper, on purpose, every month. Spend every dollar on paper before you get it. That sounds weird to say, right? But it means make a plan. Spend it ahead of time in your mind on paper before you get it, and then you will have money left over at the end of the month. It's strange how that happens. Maybe not the first month because you need to practice, 
maybe not the second month. Usually by the third, it starts to work. It starts to stick. You will have more money at the end of the month instead of too much month at the end of the money. And it works. And it's the single most life-changing thing you can do for yourself financially. All right? So calendar that time now. Right now, this afternoon, tomorrow, on Wednesday, whatever. Not Bible study time, maybe after that. All right? Calendar that time now. That's how you can apply this message. Calendar that time to go through that. If you're already living on a budget, great. Fantastic. Maybe you can review some of the other areas of your life, like giving and saving, paying off debt or investing, some of those other things. Any questions about that stuff? We've got several people uh, in our church that have gone through Dave Ramsey a number of times, and so we would love to talk to you about any of these principles and follow through and follow up on any of that stuff. So feel free to, to talk to me if you would like to, all right, about any of these principles or anything that Dave Ramsey might teach. Um, I would love to talk through any of that stuff for you, all right? So if we honor God with our financial plan, he will use us to bless others, to bless others financially or with our time or with our talents. All three of those categories are important, and that is the greatest honor as a Christian. Amen? All right, let's check out this video. Why do we give? We give to make a difference, to touch hearts and change lives. We give to feed the hungry, care for the sick, and comfort those in need. We give to show Jesus to our neighbors, our community, and the world. We give as an act of worship, 